for that. Daniel chapter 8. I, every time I hear that song, my mind goes back in time. I don't know if yours ever does that. Remind you of things. and takes me back to some days in the late 1990s, way back yonder. It seems hard to say that, but uh, I was had gone to Georgia, and I, I tell you, or Egypt, whichever one you want to call it, I, uh, I've seen over time, you look back and you wonder why God does some things he did, and I know God took me on that journey to teach me one valuable lesson, and that is the value of humility. Very humbling experience along the way, many of them. And there were a lot of days I would be with the Lord, talking to the Lord, my old, old 94 Ford pickup, and had a little AM station, WGMI 1440 there in Bremen. Played all these little songs like this, and I'd listen to the Crab family sing Through the Fire, and I'd listen to old Michael Cone sing about being not, being not for sale. And man, I, I tell you, there was a lot of days that some of that uh, message through those songs really spoke to my soul and helped me through some hard times and I know that it's God is still doing that today and I'm grateful for the ministry of music it helps us reminds us music has the ability to motivate you has the ability to even calm you during things so thank God for that and I don't ever want to forget how God has used songs such as that to help me. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. If you found your place physically able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I want to read a portion of this chapter and we will survey the message of this chapter today as we talk about the accuracy of prophecy. Notice what the Word of God says. Daniel chapter 8 verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. And I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uriah. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram with two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver him from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram. Tell him I'll be there in a minute. Then he came to the ram that uh, had two horns, which I saw standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, and attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground, and he trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. When he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars of the ground and trampled them. 
He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army was given over him to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all that he did prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to certain one who was speaking, How long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation and the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be clean. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father in heaven, pray you help us today to open eyes of our hearts and ears of our hearts to hear and receive from your word and to respond that which you teach us today. May people's lives be changed today as a result of hearing the truth of the word of God. And for that I give you praise. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today I'm speaking to you on the accuracy of prophecy. Last week from chapter 7, as I shared with you, we noticed a dramatic shift in the writing of Daniel. We remember from the first six chapters, Daniel dealt specifically with historical events that were tied to his time of captivity there in Babylon. In chapter 7, as he did that, he <coughs> began to detail some details of a vision that he had received from the Lord at an earlier time. Keep in mind as we studied last week chapter 7 and this week chapter 8 that the events that Daniel saw occurred 20 years before Belshazzar's demise and the handwriting on the wall in chapter 5. So these things are taking place at an earlier time. Last week we learned from chapter 7 about a vision of prophetic events that are all still future to us. And today in chapter 8 we're going to learn about a vision that Daniel had that details many events that were future to him. Some of that prophecy has come to pass since that time while other is still future. Also, chapter 8 begins with a shift in not only the writing, but in the language with which it's recorded. You'll remember that I told you last week, the beginning in the early part of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is recorded in Aramaic. But in chapter 8, it returns to being recorded in Hebrew. And the rest of the book of the Daniel from chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are written in Hebrew and they deal with the nation of Israel. But it's important to understand that the message of Daniel is not limited to the book of Israel, even though it is very much focal in these chapters. David Jeremiah had something interesting to say about the nation of Israel, and we know it's very important, and I want to encourage you to pray that our nation always stands with the nation of Israel. That's very important. Don't ever take that lightly. And see, Israel, according to what David Jeremiah says, and I quote, he said, It has been the nerve center of the earth since the time of Abraham. It's been the truth center from which a stream of divine revelation has flowed since the birth of Christ. It has been the storm center of warring nations since the days of Joshua, and it will be the peace center during the kingdom age, which I agree wholeheartedly with Brother Jeremiah on that assessment. In order to get to where we are here in chapter 8 and to understand its meaning, we've got to understand the setting behind the writing and the vision. 
It's 551 B.C. is the time of this vision, and Daniel finds himself in Shushan, which is about 200 miles southeast of Babylon. Now, in 551 B.C., this was not a very important city. It was not a very important place to the Babylonians. It was kind of insignificant, to say the least. But it would become significant later because Shushan would become the capital of the Persian Empire who would ultimately conquer the Babylonians 12 years after Daniel receives this vision. So it's not an accident that Daniel is at Shushan. It's not an accident that he's sitting by the river Uli because God had him where he wanted him. God had him where he could speak to him and we need to remember this in our lives that God has a way of getting his people, his men and his ladies. He has a way of getting us to the right place so that he can speak to us clearly, he can fill us with his power, and he can use us to accomplish his purpose. Daniel was not there by accident. He was there for the express purpose of God, and it would become very clear in the coming years exactly why he was there now as we look at daniel chapter 8 there's one major idea main main truth i want you to get if you don't get any of this other stuff i really want you to get this i should have put this on the screen but i didn't and i apologize but daniel 8 teaches us something daniel 8 teaches us that we can trust the word of god we can trust the word of god that it is authentically inspired and is completely accurate 100% of the time. Now, I'm going to say that again. Daniel 8 teaches us we can trust the Word of God, that it is authentically inspired, and it, it, can, and it is completely accurate 100% of the time. That's the major lesson of this entire chapter. We're going to talk about a lot of different animals, and we're going to talk about some symbolism, and we're going to talk about what that means. But this chapter ought to drive you to know when you understand the fulfilled prophecy and that that is yet to be fulfilled, that you can trust the Word of God. The first thing I want you to notice as we just kind of begin to set the stage and walk through this chapter is I want you to notice the divine communication that took place in Daniel's life. If you remember in chapter 7, the vision was that of four beasts. Those four beasts represented four kingdoms the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and the Roman Empire. The vision in Daniel chapter 8 is somewhat different. It's not four beasts, but two, and we're going to talk about each one of them. Notice, first of all, he sees the vision of a ram. Well, we, we know what they are, and they're not from Los Angeles or St. Louis or wherever they're playing at this year. I don't know, but nevertheless, not, not those rams. But he sees the vision of a literal ram, and this ram is very, um, you know, special, if you will, very unique because it is a ram that has two horns, but he notices one horn is taller than the other, and the taller one came up later than it did than the first. This ram is also very aggressive and is seemingly unstoppable based on the vision of Daniel, and this ram would become a great, great empire. Then he sees also not only the vision of a ram, but he sees that of a goat. Now, the goat looks very different than the ram because it doesn't have two horns. It only has one. The horn is not on the side of its head. It's between its eyes. And he 
overtakes the goat overtakes the ram. He's stronger than the ram. Ultimately, the large horn that between the ram's I mean, excuse me, the goat's eyes are broken, and from that broken horn, four smaller horns arise. So we see the vision of the ram, the vision of the goat. We'll talk about what both those mean in a minute. But there's one other thing he saw, as he saw another little horn in verse 9. That little horn arises out of the one of the four smaller horns that come from the goat. And, and this little horn doesn't stay little, but it grows exceedingly, becomes very large and very powerful. Uh, so we see there was a divine communication taking place as God is speaking to Daniel through this vision and he is showing him things that are about to come to pass. Some will come to pass shortly. Other will come to pass even past our time. But he shows him these things for a purpose. Not just his divine communication, but that brings us directly to the direct re revelation. Now, it's one thing for God to show him these rams and goats and horns and things like that. But it's another thing for God to be able to share with Daniel what they mean so that we can share them with the world today what they mean. Verses 15 through 19 is some dramatic verses as we read about this interaction that takes place between Daniel and the angel Gabriel. You know, he's the one that's going to blow the trumpet when we get out of here real soon, right? I mean, he's, he, he's pretty special, right? Now it's the birth of our Lord. I'd say he's pretty awesome. So here's Daniel. He is interacting with Gabriel, and, and when he does so, it's quite a dramatic scene. I'd encourage you to uh, read more about that. I know time doesn't give us a lot of opportunity for that, but in verses 15 through 19, it is a dramatic scene that took place with Daniel and Gabriel. But in verse 20, he begins to give meaning to Daniel. So we have a direct revelation, one straight from God through his messenger, okay? Now let's go back and look again, if you will, as we see what it means. And we see, first of all, the ram again, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, you'll remember that this empire, of course, is made up of the Medes and the Persians. And one horn being taller than the other that came up to last was representative of the Persians because they were the ones who had much more military might than the Medes. The Medes had a lot of good stuff going on, you know, for the kingdom, and, and here comes the Persians, and they've got the military prowess. So they come together, and they form one kingdom, and that's what we see in the ram. Cyrus the Persian defeated Babylon in 539 B.C. after he had already defeated Libya, Egypt, all of Asia Minor, and he moved as far as India. At that point, he had created the largest empire in the known world. They, they were really digging up some territory. But Cyrus did something that's rather interesting as uh, pertaining to the Jewish nation. When he overtook Babylon, that victory was very significant for the Jews because Cyrus allowed them the opportunity to return to Jerusalem that they might rebuild its walls and its temples. So they thought this is a pretty good deal. He's coming here after 70 years, and he's taken over the Babylonian Empire, and he's letting us go home. And see, God chose Cyrus, and God used Cyrus for the purpose of allowing his people to return to their homeland 
after 70 years in captivity. Well, then after them, the Medo-Persians, came the Greek Empire, which is represented by the goat. Now, let's talk about this goat for just a minute. It not only represented the Greek Empire, but it represented the strength and the might of their leader, Alexander the Great. Now, he had a pretty large kingdom, too. His kingdom stretched from Italy to Egypt all the way eastward to modern-day Pakistan. He had a large kingdom. This Greek empire, even though it was large and mighty, Alexander dies at 33 years of age after a drunken feast or whatever, and when he died at 33 years of age, he had no plans of succession. There was no successor to ultimately rise to overtake the Greek Empire. So what resulted was is that the kingdom was divided into four kingdoms, four horns that came up, and each of them went their own way. Now let's talk about Alexander for a minute. Alexander was a man, and you'll remember this even from world history, not just what we know from the Bible, uh, but he was a man who had a tremendous amount of outward success, but his life was marked with inward collapse. O on the outside, he looked powerful and mighty and awesome and all this stuff, but inwardly, his life was a mess. He was one who controlled all the known world at that time, but he could do nothing about the sin that overtook him. See, he had conquered kingdoms, he had fought many battles, but he could not conquer his own battle with sin. Why? You need to know this. Right from world history and the life of Alexander the Great, no one has the ability to take care of their sin problem unless they come through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no way to do it. No matter how mighty, no matter how powerful you are, you cannot deal with your sin problem. Jesus himself said this, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Oh, wow. Alexander had it all going on, but at 33 years of age, he died, he was buried, and his kingdom was divided, and it, nothing went on that brought him any glory past the grave. See, earthly success never equals spiritual victory. You can be a child of God, experience earthly success, give God glory, and that's wonderful. But there are many people in our world today, much like Alexander, doing everything they can to look successful in the eyes of the world while not realizing they cannot fix their sin problem. They must come by the way of the cross. So the Greek kingdom was divided into four smaller kingdoms, and here's what we know, not just from Scripture, but from world history. None of those kingdoms ever came close to having the power that they experienced under Alexander the Great. But then we read about this little horn again. This little horn is representative of an emerging empire, verses 9 through 14. Now, this little horn that we read about in chapter 8, it comes forth from one of the divided kingdoms of Greece. Now, I know you're thinking, man, I was here last week, preacher. I paid attention, got me some notes. I did, I'm telling you, I watched online. I did, I got it. And I know, I'm already ahead of you. Daniel 7, the little horn is representative of the Antichrist. Right here we are in chapter 8, and the rascal shows up again. Well, here's what you need to know. 
In Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 14, the description of this little horn that comes from one of the divided kingdoms of Greek is a forerunner of the Antichrist, and it's representative of a world ruler that came on the scene during that time called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, let me just talk about Antiochus for a little bit because you need to see what he was all about. And boy, I tell you, he was up to no good. His rulership was still future to Daniel when he received this vision in 551 B.C. His rulership was still future to Daniel, but it's accounted in history for us. He was a ruthless king, a very wicked king, ruled Syria from 170 to 163 B.C., and even Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible commentator, said that this Antiochus Epiphanes IV was one of the cruelest tyrants in history. Now, I know we're looking and thinking, wow, that is some kind of title for him to have based on what we've read about all of these other tyrants. Now, his name Antiochus and his surname Epiphanes was a name that he gave to himself. He gave himself a surname and you'll see why because of what epiphanies means epiphanies means illustrious epiphanies means a manifestation epiphanies means the great one he self-titled himself the great one right well that's something else that's amazing well the jews didn't like him he didn't like the jews and you're going to find out why the jews didn't like him here in just a minute but they kind of did a little play on words with him, and they did not refer to him as Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes. Now, I know you're thinking to me, well, big deal. Epiphanes, Epimenes, you know, language, no big deal. Well, I found out years ago while on a mission trip doing a pastor's conference in Mexico that languages, things are different between languages. I remember we had an American preacher and he was preaching and he kept talking about that three-letter word sin and the interpreter stopped him and said, wait, I got to talk to you. He said, why? He said, because in our language, in Spanish, sin is six letters. There's a big difference. So we couldn't talk about that three-letter word. It was a six-letter word in Spanish. And so they did a little play on words with him here with this, with Epiphanes and Epimenes. He called himself the great one, the illustrious manifestation and they called him Epimenes, which is translated crazy one, madman, or idiot. They, they, they did not think he was illustrious. They didn't think he was the great one. They thought he was a crazy madman. So Antiochus demonstrated his hatred for the Jews by first issuing some ordinances against them. Here's what he did. The first thing he did was he outlawed observance of the Sabbath. He said, you Jews will not practice the Sabbath under my reign. Then he went so far as to forbid the practice of circumcision, which all Jewish males had done to them on the eighth day after their birth. It was very important to them. He also forbidden them practicing any Jewish dietary laws, and he outlawed possessing or reading any Old Testament scripture. I mean, he's on a tear, isn't he? <laughs> but he goes even further. Ultimately, Antiochus Epiphanes IV set up an image of Zeus in the Jewish temple that strikingly resembled his own likeness, and he demanded that the Jews would worship that image that he had set up. Now, those are just some 
kind of things he put in place, some ordinances, just some things to really begin to cause difficulty for the Jewish people. But then he went way further. He is known to have executed 80,000 Jews at one time. He is known to have forced a mother of seven Jewish boys to watch as her boys were fried alive on top of a hot metal surface. After she witnessed the death of her seven sons at the hands of Antiochus, history records that he gouged out her eyes so that the last thing she would see in her memory was her sons dying in agony. That's a mean dude, right? I mean, then he even went further. After he caused death and destruction, he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal in the Jewish faith, he sacrificed an unclean pig on the altar in the Jewish temple every month. He was doing everything he could to cause them difficulty and despair. He's not the kind of guy I think you and I would want to be around. But ultimately, he invaded the Holy Land. Ultimately, he overtook the temple. And when he did so, he stopped sacrifices from taking place for 2300 sacrifices now I told him earlier and I'll remind you there is some difference of opinion on some of this interpretation but the fact of the matter it gets us all back to the same place but I've really consulted the Lord consulted his word and really consulted about 12 15 sources to try to get the best interpretation I could for what this means Antiochus invades the Holy Land he takes over the temple and he stops sacrifices for 2300 sacrifices in that uh, culture, they had a sacrifice every evening and sacrifice every morning. So with that being said, 2,300 sacrifices, and, and based on my wonderful mathematical skills I got here at Cleveland County High School, 2,300 divided by, 1, divided by 2 is 1,150. I'll get it right in a minute, okay? 2,300 divided by 2, 1,150 days of which he did not allow any altar sacrifices evening or morning so how could Antiochus be stopped to fulfill the prophecy of Daniel because it's very clear on when this would stop well the word of God I believe is 100% inspired 100% accurate 100% true but from world history and also from the Jewish book of first Maccabees which is included in the apocrypha there was a revolution that took place. You probably remember it, and if you took world history, it was called the Maccabean Revolution. This revolution was led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, and he was called the Hammer. He led this revolution, and this revolution was successful in recovering the temple and taking it back away from Antiochus' control and returning it to the Jewish people. Temple sacrifices were resumed exactly after 1,150 days, just as the Word of God predicted 300 years earlier. So to celebrate, they had a festival. And the festival took place on December the 14th, 164 B.C. And the Jews still celebrate this rededication of the temple every December in what we know to be called Hanukkah. Sometimes we just thought that it was people who didn't know how to say Merry Christmas, right? You know what it is now, right? Hanukkah. They are celebrating the retaking of the temple. 
So we had some divine communication. We have some direct revelation. But let's dig deeper into this today here in verse 23. And let's notice some dynamic manipulation. See, prophetic literature often has a dual fulfillment. Here's what that means. This means that prophecy is fulfilled at a time future to Daniel, which was Antiochus' reign, and even further filled at a future time and at a later time, at a later date. We, we have a dual fulfillment here. We have the fulfillment of Antiochus, but there's also a correlation to what will take place during the days of great tribulation with the Antichrist. Now, the historical account of Antiochus, the little horn of chapter 8, is also a foreshadow of the future. The little horn of Daniel 8, as I told you, is not the same as the little horn of Daniel 7, but we cannot discount the striking similarities. Here's what we know about Antiochus and what he did and the Antichrist and what he will do. Both will seek to manipulate, first of all, through oppression. Here's some similarities between Antiochus and the Antichrist and some examples of the ways they oppress the people. They both will persecute Jewish people. Antiochus did, and so will the Antichrist. They both want to impose their own religion. Antiochus set up the image of Zeus in the temple and demanded that everybody worship it. The Antichrist will do the same during the days of great tribulation. They both appear to be rather invincible. Antiochus seemed to be rolling on pretty smooth until he ran into the Maccabees. And what will happen in the days of the Antichrist, as I talked to you about from Revelation 13 last week, is at the height of his success, at the height of his fame, he will literally suffer a head wound, will literally die, and will experience a pseudo-resurrection, and it will throw the world into a tailspin of not knowing what to believe. Antiochus set up that image. He demanded that the people worship it just the same as the Antichrist. And some historians believe it's striking to understand that Antiochus reigned from 170 to 163 B.C., which was a span of seven years, which mirrors the reign of the Antichrist, which will be seven years during the days of tribulation. They manipulated through oppression, but they also manipulated through opposition. Here's some other similarities. Both blaspheme God. Both of them use their mouth to speak great swelling words of blasphemy against God. Both are great deceivers and both will persecute those that resist them. That's why I tell you it is so important that you come to Christ in the day of grace. It is so important that you share the gospel in the day of grace. It's so important that you surrender heart and soul to Jesus, that you encourage everybody you know and love to do the same because those who reject Jesus and are left here to face great tribulation, if they resist the work of the Antichrist, they will be persecuted and annihilated for their resistance. You see, the prophecy of Daniel 8 reveals to us even further character of the Antichrist, which is future based on the testimony of Antiochus, which is history. And the good thing to always know is, is if you can trust the historical accounts of what has been told and you can see where prophecy has been fulfilled in the past, it can help you to trust it even greater to be fulfilled in the future. See, the Antichrist will be a smooth negotiator. 
He's going to be polished enough to negotiate a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. I told him earlier today, I remember I was in the second grade when Jimmy Carter and had the Camp David Peace Summit, the Camp David Peace Accords with Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, and Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel, and how that was a landmark, monumental peace accord for that day and time, peace between those nations. We see things now, fast forward 40 years, and we're in seeing stuff going on between the United Arab Emirates and other Arab nations uh, seeking to have peace with Israel. I believe it's very setting, if you will, and very much foretelling of what is to come is that ultimately this smooth negotiator, this world leader will come on the scene and he'll be better than Jimmy Carter. He'll be better than anybody either about brokering peace with Israel. But after three and a half years of this seven-year peace treaty, his true nature will be revealed. His thirst for power will no longer be able to be hidden. And he will even come to the point that he takes on the Lord Jesus himself in verse 25. The good news is, is that when he takes on Jesus, he'll be ultimately destroyed. And he'll be destroyed not by the armies of the earth, but by the word of God. According to Revelation chapter 19, the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus as he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and he does, uh, does, takes care of the Antichrist and those that follow him. You know, it's kind of stubborn, it's kind of silly, but you have to, I mean, not silly, but kind of stubborn, kind of crazy, but you have to remember the Antichrist is going to basically be fulfilling the purpose and the mission of Satan himself, Satan incarnate. He's going to do some crazy things, and it's going to seem as though it makes no sense. Kind of like my friend from Tennessee told me about a big red bull they had. They called Big Red one time, a friend of his had. He said Big Red was a real stubborn bull, and Big Red kind of did what Big Red wanted to do. And Big Red one day, well, he would go out, and he would eat the, the, the weeds and the grass by the train tracks. One day, he got so bold as he got up on the train tracks and started eating the grass that grew between uh, the, the cross ties. Well, it wasn't long after that, a train began to come, and Big Red saw the train. Big Red felt the rumble, and Big Red saw it coming, but he just kept eating grass. That was his train track. Well, the, you know, the conductor did what they do. They blew the horn. They did everything they could to try to get the bull's attention to get him off the train. But the closer the train got, Big Red just got more and more upset. He stared down the train. He snorted. He pawed the ground. He did all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, when it got real close to him, he charged the train. I don't guess I have to tell you how that turned out. <laughs> it didn't go real good for Big Red. Now, he was rough, and he was tough, and he was big, and all that kind of stuff, but he was no match for a locomotive. <coughs> My friend said to him, said he asked, asked his friend about his bull, and he said, well, you know, what made Red think he could do that? I mean, surely, he, you know, even a cow knows better. Even a bull knows better than that. He said, well, the thing about Big Red was he said he always had more courage than he had sense. And I want you to know that's true. You can correlate that to the Antichrist. He will seem courageous, but he will be no match for Jesus. And always remember this. I told him earlier, I want to remind you too. When you see this stuff on emails and social media and the Internet where it's like showing the devil arm wrestling Jesus and says, click who you think will win. <laughs> I mean, come on. 
you know, if we can get more likes for Jesus, we'll be good. But if Satan gets more likes, he wins. I don't care what he does. Jesus is not in an arm wrestling match with a devil. He's not in any kind of match for authority and power. He won the battle of redemption for mankind at Calvary. When he came forth out of the empty tomb, when the tomb was empty and he rose from the dead, that defeated death, hell, and the grave. That He is no match. He is no contest. This is not going to be a contest of who's the strongest by no means. Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, i got to look at verse 27 because <coughs> of all the verses, and boy, I'll tell you, 27 verses in this chapter is just packed full of stuff of prophecy, uh, of visions, and all this kind of stuff. But verse 27, <coughs> excuse me, is a verse that really speaks to my soul. Look at it with me, if you will. He says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. And afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Last thing he teaches us here is about our daily vocation. Now, I want you to part with me here for a few minutes because this is something you take home with you that if you understand the prophecy, if you understand the vision, if you get the interpretation, that's wonderful. But if you don't get this last verse, you're going to miss some of the most important things that you can take from this chapter that will make a difference in your life and a difference in your world. So what do we learn? From Daniel's holy encounter here in chapter 8. Well, there's two things I want you to notice. I want you to write these down. The first thing is we learn a lot about surrender. And outside of surrender, I didn't put this on the screen, but this will be good to go with that. Outside of surrender, I'd put in parentheses, total attention. Now, look what happened. He said, I fainted and was sick for days. Wow. I was fainting because I had been under so much of the encounter with Gabriel and the encounter with God that I could not take it all in. My body could not hold it. And I was literally physically sick for days. God had brought Daniel to a place of total surrender. And we know he'd been there. But he had him at a place of total surrender. Listen, he had his total attention. Here's my fear if I've got one, and I do have one about this. Here's my fear for the days we're living in. It burdens my heart to think sometimes that even after all we've been through the past five or six months, that maybe God still hadn't got our attention. Do y'all ever think about that? I do. I think about that a lot. I want to, He still hasn't got our attention. And here's the question I have to ask myself. What will it take? I mean, how much more is it going to take? What needs to happen? In God blessed America, what needs to happen for God to get your total attention, my total attention, our total attention? What does it take for us to live in total surrender to his lordship to where he has our total, complete attention? I told you, I don't know about y'all. Worldwide pandemic, one like, not like a hundred years. Uh... We don't know from week to week if we're going to be able to meet in person or not based on what this virus does. Uh, two hurricanes in the Gulf coming this week at the same time. Hello! 
And yeah, once again, I tell you, a meteor coming on an election day. Election day, how about that, right? I don't know all this stuff, and I can't document all this stuff, but I can just tell you this, and I can't prove what all it is, but I can just tell you this. God is speaking clearly. Wake up. Let me have your total attention. What will it take? Well, our daily vocation is to live in total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, he's got my attention. If I've ever had a burden for the gospel, if I've ever had a burden for the word of God, if I've ever had a burden for the people of God, if I've ever had a burden for the purpose of God, it's now. I don't want this, I don't want to, you know, Nick Saban says don't ever waste a, don't ever waste a loss. If you lose, learn something from the way. I don't want to waste a crisis. I'm learning something from this crisis and it's telling me to live in total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then there's another one. you got to get this. Not only should we live in surrender, but we live to serve. I would write out beside serve in parentheses, total abandon. Not just total attention, surrender, but total abandon, serve. What did verse 27 say? I was fainted, I was sick for days, but wait, there's this big old, big old, big old Greek word here, right? Afterward. <laughs> Afterward, that means I got better. It means I got better. Daniel said I I didn't stay there, but after I got better, I arose and went about the king's business. There's something about getting better, ain't it? I told him in the early service, and I want to tell you too. Um, yeah. You know, when the ball game Friday, I love football. I don't know if I've told y'all that. I love football. I love the competition. I love the, the, the aggressiveness and uh, all those things. Love it. Love it. Love it. So I was watching my guys on Friday night. It started raining. And it'd been kind of tough. And I found me a place uh, where I wouldn't get wet, where y'all wouldn't have to shovel me up after the game. So I, all my salt. So I'm under this thing, and I got the guy with me up there. He's for the other team. But, you know, you never know why you're where you are till you're there. I'm thinking, you know, why am I standing? I don't know this. Man, so I'm watching. And, and we, we scored a touchdown. We scored a touchdown. I looked out on the other end, and I thought, wait a minute. That's my little buddy, Ian McGowan. He's, he's going out on the field. He's fixing to kick an extra point. So I'm watching, anticipating. Snap, hold, kick, extra points, good. This ain't a big deal. Just an extra point. Oh, no, no, it wasn't just an extra point. Because I, I remember this last year when he had a horrific injury. I wonder if he would walk, run, much less ever swing that leg and kick again. That was victory. So it gave me an opportunity for the gospel. So I got this dude from Ohashi beside me. I don't know where the man in South Carolina. Uh, you know, my heart swelling because I was so excited he had made the kick. And, you know, and this guy's probably thinking, it's just an extra point, dude. I mean, y'all only down by 33. Why are you so happy? So I look at him. I said, hey, you probably don't know that kid, but I do. I said, you probably don't know his story, but I do. I said, you know something, man? I said, uh, last year he got hurt really bad. Four-wheeler, side-by-side, whatever. Man had to be life-lighted Emory didn't know how this was going to turn out and to see him go out there and kick man I said this is awesome I said you know what sir 
I said, uh, over there at Emory Hospital, they got some of the best orthopedic neurosurgeons and physical therapists under the sun. They got everything you can to help you the very best of their ability. I said, but you know what? It wasn't just the medical professional that touched that little boy. I said, it was God Almighty. I said, man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I start telling him about the good grace of God and what Jesus did. This guy's probably thinking, man, I came to a ball game. I didn't come to church. <laughs> But I didn't realize we can have church wherever we are because, you know, we are the church. We carry the church. It ain't this building. It's us, right? So, I mean, I get to meet this guy, and I'm just giving God glory for what he's done. But I thought about Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, because, you know, I don't just get up on Saturday morning and whoop out a Saturday night special, man. I sink my ever-loving soul into this book and into this word and in these sermons. It's kind of funny. Well, Brenda does our stuff. She sent me a, a, a text yesterday. Said you can send me your demon notes whenever you get. I mean, sermon notes whenever you get ready. And, and I, she laughed. Made a little. I said, "Man, you can't make this stuff up." I said, "I'll get those demon notes to you right away." But I'm just saying. I thought about the word of God when I'm sitting there watching a ball game in the rain and my little buddy kicked the field goal, never thought he'd do it again. And I'm telling this guy I don't even know about how good God is. And I thought about myself. You know what? He was down. He was sick. He was hurting. But after he got well, he went back about the business of which he was doing. That's what Daniel did. Daniel said, after I got up, after I got well, you know what I did? I got up and I got busy doing the king's business. Here's what he did. He said, I'm going to go do what I'm put here to do. What are you put here to do? Well, I don't know everything specifically, but I do know what the king's business is. And if we belong to the king, we ought to be about the king's business. And here's what the king said. The king, Lord Jesus himself, said this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he encountered that little short guy, Zacchaeus, who climbed up the wee-wee-wee Zacchaeus in a sycamore tree tree tree. Remember that? All right, remember when he encountered him? He said, Zacchaeus, you get down. I'm going home with you. And he went with him, and he said this. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you want to know what the king's business is, the king's business is getting the gospel into the hearts and minds of people so that the king can do the saving. The king can do the rescuing. The king can do the redeeming. What you and I got to do is just get well, get up, get out there, and get it done. That's it. Just do the king's business. Well, let me share this with you. I was reading, of course, David Jeremiah, and he shares this story. And it really stirred my heart, and I got to share it with you. President Eisenhower who before he was president was a great general, the leader of the Allied forces on D-Day. Tremendous stress. I'm imagine how anybody could handle that, but he did. Had it not been for D-Day, you and I might be speaking German today. You do know that, don't you? If we were even here. Thank God for people put together, had the courage to do what it takes to preserve freedom. Ain't you grateful to God for that? President Eisenhower, of course, after he finished his military time, became president. 1952, he was elected and served until January 61. President Eisenhower got a letter one day. He was on vacation. Got a letter from a little boy, six years old, lived in Colorado, who was dying of cancer. And he said in the letter, he said, I, before I die, I just want to meet my hero. And he said, you're my hero. Now, you know, President Eisenhower could have been wrong, but he was humbled by that. He said, why would a little six-year-old boy who 
who is dying, why would one of his dying wishes be to meet me? He said, well, I'll tell you what. So he got his guys on it. And he told them, so find out where he lives, find out all this kind of stuff, find out how we get there. And the next Sunday morning or so, the presidential limousine pulls up to a little neighborhood in rural Colorado. And out pops President Eisenhower. He walks up to the door with one of his aides or guys with a Uzi or whatever. But he walked up there to the door and he personally knocked on the door and the door opened and there's this man standing there, his little boy's daddy. He'd been out working evidently. He had some old tore up blue jeans, which are probably pretty fashionable now. You can probably pay lots of money for those things. But tore up blue jeans and a dirty shirt. He'd been sweating, had oil on. And uh, he opens the door, dirty and nasty, and there's the President of the United States. Not exactly who he was expecting for that Sunday morning. President Eisenhower tells him while he's there, he said, I married your little boy, sent me a letter, and here's the letter. He goes and gets his little boy. Little boy comes, he sits, and he has a conversation with President Eisenhower. He asks him, would you like to come out and see the limousine? Of course, the little boy did, and they set him in the seat, and they showed him all the little bells and whistles of a presidential limousine from the 1950s. <laughs> and after they're done, President Eisenhower takes the little boy back in the house and shakes his hand, hugs his neck, thanks him for his letter, wishes him well. Goes back, gets in the limousine, and goes on his way. Story was, everybody in town was just blown away that a sitting president would just show up unannounced at the door of a six-year-old boy on a Sunday morning simply because he asked him to come. Everybody was excited about it except one guy. And the guy that wasn't too excited about it was the guy who opened the door. Now, he was excited. The president came but he was embarrassed of his condition when he met the president. Are you with me? I'm going somewhere with this if you'll stay with me. No, no. He, if he had just known that President Eisenhower was coming, had they announced that they were going to be there that Sunday morning at that time, Daddy would have shined up. I mean, he might have went down there to the Dillard's and got him some of them shiny shoes. I mean, he might have really slick, got him a haircut. I don't know what. He would have really shined up for the president if he had known when he was coming. But he did. Here's what you and I know. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise to meet him in the air. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, if I knew the president was coming today, I'd probably go home and put on a fresh pot of coffee and probably you know fix up some fresh corn dogs or something <laughs> I'd shine I'd be ready for the I'd be ready for the visit wouldn't you I know you know matter somebody if you're a different party you might say I don't want to see him I don't care I'm not I'm not talking about party politics I'm talking about if somebody of that level of importance showed up at your house right you would make preparation for their visit we know he's coming 
We just don't know when. Now you're going to open the door with a heart black with sin, unredeemed, unsaved, with no hope to go be with him? Or when he comes, will he find you ready? Because, see, there are a lot of people that run around in this world and they're afraid they're going to do something to lose what God give them through Jesus, their salvation. They're afraid that if they make one mistake, have one wrong thought, say one bad word, or have the one bad reaction, that God will just take away their salvation until they get saved again and again and again and again. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's no Bible to prove that. Here's the best news of all. Here's the best news the world needs to know. You don't have to be saved multiple times, and if you are a child of God, you will mess up. You will still fall short. But John said, if any man sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We don't have to get re-saved. Our relationship doesn't go away. You can strain your fellowship, but you never break relationship. <laughs> but do you have a relationship? That's the question. And will he find you ready to meet him? Only you know the answer. Father, in Jesus' name, oh, how I thank you for the accuracy of your holy word. God, how I thank you that I can trust the truth that is taught on the pages of Holy Scripture. And I thank you, Father, for the relationship that we have and that all your children have that can be trusted and is eternally secure. Father, I pray for any person in this room today that is not ready to meet you when you come. That should you come today, they would be unprepared to meet you. God, I pray right now, Lord, whether they're watching by way of internet or whether they are in this auditorium, this worship center, God, I pray that you would speak so clearly, so powerfully through the voice of the Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin, and draw them to repentance today. God, that they would leave this place today knowing without a doubt that they belong to you. And Father, I pray that you help us as we continue to study these pages of Scripture. That we can trust you. Because there's a whole lot in this world we cannot trust. Very little we have any control over, but Father, we are so grateful that there's nothing beyond your sovereign control. Lord, we love you. We thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hey, I want you to look this way just a few minutes before we close. Listen, I'm very serious when I tell you that if you're not sure you have a relationship with Jesus, you are the reason this preacher is in your lane today, right? I'm here today because I want to help you have a relationship with Jesus. If you do have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to have a healthy and a vibrant and a growing relationship with Jesus. But if you don't, the worst thing you could ever hear, we talked about it last week, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus would say, depart from me, you work iniquity, you practice lawlessness, 
never knew you. Because I may not be known by many people or never be famous, don't want to be, but I want to be known by the King of Kings. Not by name, but by relationship that was possible through this brother. Remember those things, and listen, I hope it creates in you an urgency to tell and share with others. You say, well, I'm afraid I'll say something wrong. Just tell, just tell what Jesus did for you. You got My story's not unique. It doesn't matter. It takes just as much grace to save a nine-year-old child as it does somebody that's in the depths of sin for many, many decades. It takes just as much grace. It doesn't matter. Both experiences are a miracle of God. Salvation is a miracle gift. So remember that, and as you go out today, remember going into this week, um, pray, pray, pray for the community, pray for our schools, and pray for everything that's going on where it's so uncertain. Pray for the gospel to be used mightily to bring people to faith in Jesus. Stay in touch with us through social media and through our website. We'll keep you updated through the week. We pray that we can, as we're taking it one week at a time, we're praying that as right now we continue to meet together next week just like this week. If anything changes based on what's going on beyond our control, we will alert you through calling posts, through the updated videos, and through our website, okay? If you have any questions, anything you ever need, Steve puts a number on the, on the screen there, 463-2576. Anything at all we can do to help you, be glad to do it. Offering buckets are on doors on the way out. Uh, you can still give online. Many have chosen that avenue due to the situation we're in. You can still mail to P.O. Box 116. And I want you to know from my heart to yours how grateful I am for your continued faithfulness, how we continue to support our mission causes, and we continue to be faithful in our community. We've not backed up any on any of that, not one bit whatsoever, and we do not intend to. Please continue to be faithful and just trust that God use us because I'm telling you, if we stay faithful through the hard times, ain't it going to be amazing what God will do with us on the other side? Amen. It's going to be amazing what God will do. And don't ever forget that you know God loves you and you know I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do. Amen. Stand with us if you will. Brother Marty's going to close us out here with a chorus. If there's anything you need from the Lord or whatever, I'm here. I'll be here. I got my mask. I'm trying to get used to all this. Marty, have you got used to it yet, Marty? I'm trying. Marty's got stock in the mask company. I mean, he's got more masks. He's got a mask in every pocket, I'm telling you. See, he backs up from me right there. <laughs> anyhow, but anyhow, anything you need, we're here for you. We love you. God bless you. Sing us when you're ready. Let him go to the everlasting arms. Goodbye.